The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So many years ago, I lived in central Idaho, and when you live in central Idaho, the Salmon River becomes a part of your recreational calendar if you're an outdoors person. And my wife and I had a few opportunities to float the Salmon River. Anybody here ever float the Salmon River in central Idaho by Riggins before? It's crazy. It's an awesome, it's the longest free-flowing river in North America. And one, uh, one day we had these friends, uh, acquaintances, who showed up at our front door early in the morning and they had strapped to this trailer this medieval, post-apocalyptic, weird-looking water world raft. It was kind of comprised of a bunch of glued-together inner tubes. It had these weird things that went over the top and they're like, hey, we're going to go float the salmon. We just bought this from a yard sale. You in? And without thinking, we're like, yes, we're in, let's do it. It sounds awesome. And so Becky and I jump in our vehicle, we drive down to the Salmon River by Riggins, and before we have a chance to talk ourselves out of it, we put in and begin floating the Great Salmon River. And at that moment, I had two thoughts coursing through my mind. I've already told you previously I'm not a fan of water, I have fear of drowning, and here I am on a homemade post-apocalyptic raft with people I barely know, and my life is in their hands. And so on one shoulder, the, the devil is saying this is going to be fun. On the other shoulder, the angel is saying, you idiot, you're going to die. Abandon ship. (laughs) And so as we start floating the river, we're heading for the first rapid. Fear begins to well up within me. I'm near the front of the raft, and I'm going over everything I'd ever heard before on previous, you know, guided uh, rafting trips down the Salmon River. I'm like, okay, if I get kicked out of the raft, feet downstream, as the current pushes you downstream, use your feet to push off logs and rocks. You don't get smashed up against a rock and drown. I'm going through all this stuff, trying to keep myself calm, doing Lamaze, uh, breathing, trying to quell my rising anxiety as we start to hit the first rapids. Meanwhile, my wife has been sort of transformed into some version of Lieutenant Dan in uh, Forrest Gump, like when he's strapped to the mast, screaming at the hurricane. My wife's back there, literally standing up on the raft, just screaming at the waves, like begging them to come get her. And I'm like, girl, you are going to die. <laughs> and with each new rapid that we came into, the, the power of the river was, was very evident. I mean, it's, it's, it's so powerful. And, and we're clueless. You know, we don't, none of us have any experience doing this. And so we're spiraling down the river, going into rapids sideways and backwards. Uh, you know, we're, it's a miracle we didn't turn the raft over. Lucky to be alive. And eventually we find ourselves heading into the, the most significant rapid. I can't remember the name of it. It might be time zone, but I don't think it's time zone. And we're heading into this rapid. And I'm getting right with Jesus because I know I'm about to meet him. And uh, my wife is still picking a fight with the water from the back of the raft, just going crazy. And uh, we start barreling through this, this uh, rapid, and we drop into this, this, like this valley of water, just white water on both sides, and this little half-inflated raft just folds, and Becky at the back of the raft meets me at the front of the raft at top, and we're tangled in the body. I'm crying for my life. She's taunting the waves. I'm like, this is not going to end well. Somehow we get spit out of the backside of this raft, all twisted and folded, the raft all torn up, still alive, uh, lucky to be alive, and never to float the Salmon River again. You know, if, if we weren't aware of the power of that river beforehand, we certainly were by that point. I mean, it's, it's impossible to, to, to not be in that water and just be at awe of the power of, of that, that river. Uh, it, it was uh, so powerful that it was unmistakable. We were at its mercy. It had its way with us. It took us where it wanted to take us. 
uh, and there was little that we could do about it. Where the river went, we went. It dictated our course, and, and there's nothing we could do about it. I think about the currents of the world around us. Last week, as we introduced the book of Daniel, we talked about how in our lifetime, in my lifetime, we've seen the winds of change blowing across the landscape of the West and blowing across the landscape of America. And it's unmistakable that the current of secularism, of godlessness in this world is stronger than it's ever been before. It's an overwhelming, overpowering current. Billions and billions of dollars are spent every year in marketing across our country, convincing us, trying to convince us to go with the flow. And to go with the flow means to turn our back on God almost always. There's a million voices that are beckoning, beckoning us to follow them. A million voices. And in all of those voices, their, their conjoined uh, strategy is to drown out the one voice that truly matters. The currents are strong. And the enemy, we can't forget, is a great, uh, incredible counterfeiter. And I know that sometimes in this life, as we survey the landscape of the world around us, we are able to identify that which is obviously not God-honoring. We're able to identify that which obviously leads us away from God. But the enemy is a great counterfeiter. And oftentimes, the enemy will present to us things which appear good, appear noble, appear moral, appear right. These good things that seem like a healthy alternative but if we're honest, in the end, these good things are not God things. And an honest assessment of our lives after doing these many good things or going along with the flow of these many good things, we realize and our life reveals that we've in fact been drifting along with the currents of this world all along, away from God. The pressure to give in is unending and it's overwhelming, even if you don't recognize it right now. In such a world, what does faithful resolve under pressure look like? In such a world where these currents are so strong in one direction, what does faithful resolve under pressure look like? To stand up, to turn our back on the world and turn our face toward God and say, that's the direction I'm going. What does it look like? See, I think as we study the book of Daniel, we, we see a great example in what faithful resolve under pressure does look like. In the world of Daniel, it was very similar to the world today. We uncovered this last week a little bit. Daniel was in exile in a foreign land sent there by God to do the work of God. The apostle Peter, many, many years later, 600 years later, 700 years later, he wrote in a letter in, in 1 Peter, comparing us as followers of Jesus today as sojourners or exiles. We are exiles as well. And as we introduced Daniel last Sunday... We saw that the setting of Daniel, how, how, he got, how, how he got into this predicament or this position. How did the people of God find themselves in Babylon, living in exile in the 6th century B.C.? Well, we saw that, that it was God's doing. The second verse of the first chapter of Daniel tells us that the Lord God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So it was God that allowed his people to be conquered in Judah and Jerusalem. It's God who allowed his people to be exiled from Judah, from Jerusalem, to modern-day Iraq, to Babylon, living as captives in a foreign land. And it was God who allowed his people to undergo this process of assimilation that we'll see even more so this morning that Nebuchadnezzar was placing upon these exiles in his midst. 
But as I shared last week, and I'll share again this week, and we'll see two places in our text today, the common thread that weaves this whole first chapter of Daniel together is this one, uh, this phrase of the Lord gave or God gave. We see it in verse 2, when God gave Jehoiakim, uh, the king of Judah, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. We see it in verse 9 of our text today, and we see it in verse 17 of our text today, that God was the one all along pulling the strings in control, allowing what happened to the people of God to happen to them. And last week, if you were here, we spent a lot of time looking in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. And I heard one commentator say this week that the best commentary on Daniel is the prophet Jeremiah. So all that being said, let's read our text. Daniel 1, it's a narrative, it's a story. We're going to begin in verse 8. We're going to read through the conclusion of the chapter. You can look in your Bibles. I also believe it's going to be on the screen behind me as we read it. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were worse, that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Verse 11. And then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Daniel said, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And the ten, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were in better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before, therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. One of the cool things about the book of Daniel, the first six chapters, is that each of these chapters is sort of a standalone story in the larger narrative that Daniel is telling. And so this is just, uh, it's kind of a, it's a self-contained story about this incredible encounter or interaction that Daniel and his friends had with those who were working on behest of King Nebuchadnezzar about the assimilation program that they were involved in. And we can't forget as we read these stories that this was a, this was the worst of times if you were an Israelite. Their kingdom had fallen, their, their temple had been destroyed, their way of life had been upended, they were displaced in captivity in a far-off land. And yet, as we've seen, God is the one pulling the strings. He's the one that's allowing this to happen and actually even causing these things to happen. He's accomplishing his will through such a thing. He's at work. And I imagine just the humanity of being a captive in a foreign land, an exile in Babylon. I imagine what it's like for those men and women living there. 
And then, like I said earlier, I imagine the prophet Jeremiah sending a message from God to these brand new exiles. They're, they're newly exiled. They, they're, the, the wounds of the war are still fresh with them. They're, they're still adjusting to life in Babylon, living as exiles. And then they receive word from God through the prophet Jeremiah. God has a word for us in exile. God, is, God sees us. He knows what we're going through. And he has a word he wants to speak to us in our exile. And that's what we read last week, Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. Here's what God said to the exiles through Jeremiah. I'll read it again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What does God have to say to these people? As they try to make a way in Babylon, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so these people living in exile had to come to terms with two radical things. One, that to be in exile was, in this case, and it's one of the only cases in the Bible, to be in exile meant that they were those who were under God's favor, sent to do God's work. The exiles were actually God's remnant. God sent his exiles to Babylon to protect them, to preserve them. And he gave them a work to do. And in Babylon, Babylon we normally associate with a, uh, the places of debauchery. Babylon is synonymous with the world and lots of biblical literature. But here in the book of Daniel, in this case, Babylon is the place where God's people are meant to be and where productive work is meant to happen for the glory of God. And so as God's people are in Babylon, they're there to do God's work. And at the same time, the king has an agenda. He's got these young men in his... his uh, his conversion therapy in his assimilation plan in Royal Academy at Babylon University. He took the best and the brightest from Israel and he's got them in this school. He's trying to convert their hearts and minds away from Israeli thinking and he wants them to become uh, bastions of the Babylonian way to the world around them. And so he's got them in this school. But what do we see happening in verse 8? We see Daniel standing against the torrents of pressure to give in. As Daniel's being pressured and tempted and pushed to give in, to go with the flow, to fully assimilate to the Babylonian way, to give up on his God and give in to the gods of Babylon, what do we see in verse 8? But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. If you've got a Bible, underline that phrase, Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. And this is the title of my sermon today. We see in this, in this phrase, faithful resolve under pressure. We see faithful resolve under pressure. I mean, can you imagine the pressure this young man was under? A young man separated from his family, far from home, in exile into a pagan nation in a foreign land. He knows nothing of this place. His homeland has been demolished. The temple has been destroyed. His way of life has been upended forever. He was handpicked by the king that overthrew his country and destroyed his way of life. He was handpicked by that king to be inv uh, brought into this, this assimilation program, this, this re-education program. And his peers, for the most part, so it seems, are just giving in to the ways of this new world. They're doing everything that this new education plan has asked them to do. And so Daniel is left with a decision to make. What's he going to do? Daniel resolved 
that he would not defile himself. Other translations say Daniel purposed in his heart to not defile himself. Daniel made up in his mind to not defile himself. Daniel was determined not to defile himself. That phrase in Hebrew literally means he placed in his heart. He placed in his heart this resolution, I am not going to defile myself or defame my God. I had someone many years ago define the word resolve as simply decide ahead of time. I like that definition. He decided ahead of time. He put his decision in his mind and the matter was settled in his heart. He resolved that he would do nothing to defame his God or defile himself. Where did such resolve come from? And a young man, isolated and alone, where did such resolve come from? It's speculative. One commentator I appreciate, he says, well, if you look back at the nation of Israel, the history of Israel, Daniel and his friends would have, would have seen the leadership of King Josiah, who was one of the greatest kings ever. He was a religious reformer. He brought the nation of Israel back to worship. We can read in, in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, the leadership of King Josiah. Perhaps they saw this religious reformer, this faithful king, live a faithful way, and they resolved in their heart, I want to be like that. Maybe it was their parents. Maybe they had amazing parents, godly parents who discipled them and loved them and showed them the ways of God and it was just in their heart when they find themselves in exile. Or maybe it was just a supernatural thing that God was doing in them. But Daniel resolved he would do nothing to defile himself. He was not willing ever to desecrate himself or pollute or stain himself, create distance between him and God. And in his mind, for whatever reason, there was something about the king's food that would do this. I mean, the scripture doesn't tell us what it was about the king's food that was the defiling aspect or the defiling element of the king's food. It was something going on with the table of the king. And so Daniel just simply knew. He had this conviction in his heart. He's like, man, if I do this, if I belly up to the king's table, if I partake of this food, it will defile, it will pollute, it will desecrate, it will stain me, and thus dishonor God. I'm not going to do it. And so he resolved in his heart, no matter the consequence. So what was it about the king's food? Well, again, the text doesn't give us explicitly what. There's speculation. Maybe it was the kind of food that was the issue for Daniel. You know, perhaps Daniel was committed to, to the dietary laws of the, of the Old Testament, the Levitical law, and this was a violation to the dietary laws he had received as a kid. So maybe for him the issue was the kind of food he was being told to eat. Maybe it was the use of the food. A lot of scholars have speculated that perhaps the food had become unclean because it was used in heathen worship. Maybe this was food that was sacrificed to a pagan god and he couldn't partake in that. That would be a defilement. Or maybe it was whose food it was. Perhaps he, Daniel resolved in his mind not to eat this food because he knew to, to belly up at the table of the conquering king was to partake in a meal with the enemy and it was the final step in assimilation. I might as well just die right now because it's the final act of betrayal to my God and my people and I will not eat the food of the king. Whatever the reason, it's unmistakable that to Daniel, he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that to partake or to engage in this behavior was defiling and it was entirely off the table for him. And this conviction was so strong. Man, I've only been preaching for like seven minutes. Have I got any more time? Just kidding. <laughs> For those of you listening online, there was an alarm that went off in the congregation. <laughs> it was a super funny joke. Um, <laughs> sorry. I told, did I tell you guys it was a long week this week? It's been a long week. I'm a little bit uh, scatterbrained today. But his conviction was strong. I like what one scholar says. He says, Daniel was willing to risk expulsion from the Royal Academy with the disgrace and danger that it entailed. His priorities were firm. 
So we see that Daniel's faithful resolve under pressure. Everything we see after Daniel's faithful resolution here, we see that it's the fruit of this resolve that exists within his heart. So look at verse 9 with me. So we move on to kind of the first point of the teaching. We see that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. If you're, again, highlighter, underliner, circler, God gave Daniel favor. That's an important bit of text to, 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 to circle. Someone in my small group uh, last week, I think, was saying, you know, if you look at the whole story here of how Israel got themselves in this position, they are in Babylonian exile, it's the discipline of God for years of disobedience. And yet the second we see Daniel, Daniel's in exile as a part of the discipline that God had for the people of God as a whole. But here's this one man in exile, and the second he shows faithful resolve, the blessings of God are just being, are waited to get poured out. God is just waiting to pour out his blessings upon the obedient. And he'd been asking his people for for centuries to be obedient. And as soon as we see obedience here, we see the blessings of God flooding down. It reminded me of the story of my grandson. My grandson, he's three, and he loves ice cream like every three-year-old. And he always is trying to figure out a way to get to the dessert the easiest way possible. Dessert's the goal, so he's got to get there. My daughter, his mom, is very, very good, very, very smart mother, concerned about his diet, so she makes him eat all his food first before he can have dessert. Well, the other day, we were having fish, and, uh, you know, Wilson's not too keen on fish, so he's like, Mom, I want some ice cream, and my daughter's like, well, when you eat your fish, you can have some ice cream. There are blessings that await the obedient, Wilson, so when you eat your fish, there is dessert. And so he's like, okay, okay, okay. So he takes his fish. He just shoves his fish in his mouth, like the whole thing. I'm like, oh, wow, good, good for him. Chews it up and then just sticks it in his cheek. And she's like, Wilson, you have to swallow that. And he, okay, two hours pass. Two hours. But can you imagine how soggy and disgusting the fish was in his cheek? He's like, mama, I want, I want ice cream. She's like, you got to eat that fish, buddy. He's like, oh. And so he, I didn't get to see this. She told me this story. She's like, he would take a, he, like he'd swallow and go, and he gagged down in obedience to the fish to receive the outpouring blessing of ice cream. That story didn't need to be in my sermon. I just wanted to tell it because it's a great story. <laughs> but that's the picture. God is just waiting. He wants to, give, he wants to, he wants to bless the obedient. And, and Daniel's like, no, I'm not going to defile my God. And we see his favor. As soon as Daniel resolves, verse 8, verse 9, the favor of God is poured out upon him. It's the second time we see the phrase God gave also, by the way. We see God gave in verse 2, like I've read earlier. And this is, again, God being the, the primary thread. God giving is a primary thread that holds this text together. It was God who caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. So here's the first thing I'd encourage you to write down. In his faithful resolve under pressure, we see God's favor. In his faithful resolve under pressure... We see God's favor. God caused Daniel's relationship with Ashpenaz, the, the chief of the eunuchs, he caused that relationship to be close. God caused it to be close. In other words, the head of the Royal Academy was led by God to show favor to Daniel and to extend to Daniel compassion. It wasn't because Daniel was, a, was especially likable. It wasn't because Ashpenaz was especially kind. It's because God was working in the midst of them both. Daniel and Ashpenaz had a relationship that was one of mutual commitment of love and of loyalty, and God did it. And Daniel had an ally. He had an ally in the Royal Academy working with him, someone who would patiently take the time to understand Daniel. So this is the first thing we see. In Daniel's faithful resolve, under pressure, we see God's favor. Now would you consider with me verses 10 through 16. 
We don't have to read them in their entirety. We've already read them. But as we consider this little section of text, it's, it's Daniel standing up to his overseers. They want him to eat the king's food. He has resolved in his heart that he can't. And so he refuses to defile himself. But notice that Daniel doesn't just burn the place down. He doesn't go middle fingers and quit in the middle of it. He doesn't torch the place. He doesn't attack them. Daniel, in a very, um, in a very respectful way, Daniel chooses to not partake in the king's food. And so if you're going to write something else down, I would encourage you to write this down, point two. In his faithful resolve under pressure, we see a respectful defiance. We see a respectful defiance. As a quick aside, it's interesting, as, as Daniel is writing the story, this is Daniel's basically like his, his autobiography. He's writing the story of his own life. And Daniel wrote this, and it's interesting that we read that, the, that Daniel is using here the Hebrew names of him and his friends. They were given, as you, as you remember in the first part of chapter 1, they were given Babylonian names. But here, as he's telling the story, he's giving the Hebrew names of him and his friend. And their names are, are rich names that point to God. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. Azariah means Yahweh is a helper. And as Daniel's just telling the story and recording the names of him and his friends, it's clear that in his heart, he never severed relationship with God. His identity was rooted in who's who God and who his God said he was. And as he just tells the story, that flows out of his heart here. And we see this respectful defiance. He has got a relationship, a good relationship with Ashpenaz, as well as the steward that Ashpenaz had appointed over him. And in these handful of verses, we see a respectful exchange and a, a back and forth between Daniel and his supervisors. Aspenes, the chief eunuch of the king who's responsible for all of these, these exiled students, he's concerned about his own well-being. He's like, man, the king is going to have my head. Literally, if I present you to the king and you're emaciated and weak and sickly, like, I, it's like, it's my skin. And I'm not sure why, but Daniel then from that point on doesn't work directly with Aspenes. He actually goes to the person that Aspenes had appointed over Daniel. And he begins to kind of go to like a, a, like a, a lower-ranked supervisor. Maybe he just didn't want to hear no from Aspenes, and so he was going to the next person so he could hear yes. But Daniel turns to this other guy, and he's like, listen, let us eat our own food. It's not going to defile us. Vegetables and water, just let us eat it and just see what happens. Just give us, give us 10 days. And see what happens. We're not told what plan B was for Daniel here, what he was going to do if, if, if when they presented themselves, they were sickly and weak and they looked awful. Maybe he just had that much confidence that his God was going to give him favor. So Daniel and his friends, for 10 days, they're granted this experimental permission to, to change their diet. And, you know, the story. I mean, they look great. Their hair is shiny. Their skin is glowing. They got a little bit of extra weight around the midsection, but good weight around the big section. Got a healthy physique. They look beautiful. And man, seriously, have you guys ever watched the TV show Alone? I know I talk about it a lot. The people on Alone that forage and eat vegetables and drink water starve to death. So I know it couldn't just be like the vegetable diet that made them look good. I think it was God's supernatural hand at work giving them the uh, uh, physical health so that when they stepped in front of their supervisor 10 days later, they looked great. And so from that point on, for the next three years, Daniel and his friends lived on water and vegetable diet, and God had to sustain them because I cannot imagine a more miserable existence. <laughs> and so they were to remain students in the Royal Academy. They, they were to continue their studies, and they were engaging where they could. 
answering to, to Babylonian names, learning Babylonian uh, curriculum, living in a Babylonian world, but unwilling to compromise on this one thing. Daniel would remain in the world, but he would not be of the world. In his mind, eat that food would have been of the world, and he wouldn't do it, but he's allowed to remain. Not compromising what he knew to be right, what he knew to be true. And yet the way we see Daniel handling himself, it's with respectful defiance, isn't it? And I think that enabled him to maintain a good rapport and relationship with his supervisors. And so as we see this faithful resolve under pressure, we see God's favor, we see respectful defiance. Look with me then at verses 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. At the end of the process, at the end of the program, as for these four youths in their three years of study, eating vegetables and water, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, we read. They mastered the curriculum. They were star students. They were the top of the class. And the stuff they were learning was not the Hebrew scriptures. They were learning the, the philosophies of the Babylonian world. So the third thing we see is that in their faithful resolve under pressure, we see worldly wisdom. They gained a worldly wisdom, and it was God's will that they do so. God gave them, we read in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. This was God's doing that they, that they come to understand the philosophies of the Babylonian world that was really opposed to God. And so God shows his favor to Daniel and his friends in, in that he gave them success. It was his doing. And they were able to pursue their academic pursuits without defiling themselves. They were able to do so and remain in purity and live in purity. I like how the New Living Translation puts verse 17. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel a special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. So as they studied this literature from the broader world, this wisdom literature from the broader world, they mastered the content and God was with them. And they did so without drifting from their God. They were able to, to, to entertain philosophies and ideologies and, and worldviews that were opposed to their God. They were able to learn those things and not get off point in, in, in worshiping and remaining obedient to their God. They were able to do it. They were able to do it. And I just think about this in a more broad sense. There is a place for unbelievers in the unbelieving world. And I'm going to make this argument a little bit later. Faithful resolve under pressure, we see God's favor, we see respectful defiance, we see worldly wisdom. Consider with me the last three verses. 19, 20, and 21. In his faithful resolve under pressure, we see finally real influence. We see real influence. Daniel had influence. And as you read the book of Daniel, it's abundantly clear how much influence he had both among his own people and to the outside world. Firstly, he had godly influence among his peers. As we just read through our text today, beginning in verse 8, it's just about Daniel. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. By the time we get to verse 11, we're seeing the names of his friends. And by the end of our narrative in chapter, or verse 20, it's Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah all standing before the king. So somewhere along the line, Daniel's friends said, hey, wait a second, here's a guy we can follow. 
hey, wait a second, here's a guy who stood up and he's, he's, he's resolved to not defile himself. He's, he's pursuing purity with God. And, and maybe Daniel broke the seal. Maybe Daniel was an example. I mean, we're speculating here a little bit, but, but it seems pretty clear that Daniel's sort of the leader here. And he clearly had influence among his believing peers. He was an example. They, they banded together. They found commonality among one another as they were trying to figure out how to live in faithfulness in a foreign land. And Daniel's faithful resolve under pressure, it created a pathway for these other men. And ultimately, as they stood before the pagan king, he was impressed. He was impressed in, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom, it says in verse 20. And so Daniel, though he may, didn't have influence at this moment with the king as the chapters unfold. It's abundantly clear that the, the faithfulness of Daniel, the, the excellency of Daniel here in the presence of the king paved the way for future influence with the king. We're going to see it as he interprets dreams and speaks truth and models faithfulness and speaks of God for the chapters that unfold. And, and the king he has, the king's got ears that are attuned to the voice of David, and we see that he is laying the foundation stones for that influence here in chapter 1. Of all the students at the Royal Academy at Babylonian University, of all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom, these four men were ten times better than the rest. Literally, as one commentator points out, that this means they were found ten hands superior to their peers. That means that, that with their two hands, they were able to do the work of five people. Five sets of hands. Their resolve and ability to work were rewarded. So what, what, what we're seeing here in, in chapter one is obedience to the command of God through Jeremiah that I read at the beginning of our, our sermon. As God spoke to the exiles in Jeremiah 21, do you remember what he said? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Then in verse 7 of Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. We see that Daniel and his friends, they are seeking the welfare of the city where God has sent them. And as they seek the welfare of that city, they are finding their own welfare. The city is prospering well through the influence of Daniel and his friends as Daniel embraces this command from God on how to live as exiles. So in his faithful resolve under pressure, we see these four things. We see godly favor, respectful defiance, worldly wisdom, real influence, and, and we see lasting influence also, by the way, because the, the author, Daniel, he adds this little commentary note at the very end of, of the chapter, doesn't he? It's this little time marker at the end of the chapter, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's 70 years later. Daniel wants us to know that his influence lasted throughout multiple kings. So, how are we, how are we to respond as we sit under this teaching? What is... I often think one of the questions we ask as we study this passage initially is like, okay, who was the original audience? The original audience to Daniel, as we shared last week, was, was, was those, those 
Israelites who were allowed to go back after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. They, they were able to go back to their land, and there, it was after the exile, so we call them post-exilic Jews. The post-exilic Jews were going back to their land, but it was forever changed. They went back to a land where they were under occupation, and, 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 the, and it was a forever changed landscape. So there were these small pockets of faithful Jews trying to figure out how to live in faithfulness, trying to figure out what fruitfulness looked like for the glory of God in an occupied world, small congregations, very similar to the, the way in which we find ourselves today. So as Daniel wrote these words, but ultimately as God wrote these words through Daniel by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, what was the intended response of that original audience? If you were one of those post-exilic Jews trying to figure out your way in life, trying to figure out faithfulness in this new world, as you're sitting under chapter 1, what was the message Daniel wanted to get across? Why did he write this down? Why did God preserve this story for people to read for generations later? We call this authorial intent. What is the intent of the author? And most basically, I think it's don't give in. Don't give in. There is a torrent of incredibly powerful currents that are trying to push you one direction, and it's so easy to just hop into the raft and just go where it takes you and just let the world tell you where to go and what to be and how to live and how to think. It's easy to do that. But I think Daniel's saying, don't give in. May my example be an example that encourages you to not give in. And at the same time, I think we have to think more deeply about this text because I think if we just take that simple application of don't give in, we can misapply it. And we can forego really the second point of my sermon, which is respectful defiance. Daniel showed respectful defiance in his in in unwillingness to give in. And I've seen sometimes in our tendency as Westerners and individualized Americans is we can, we can be defiant in the least respectful of ways. And I think, I think we need to think a little bit more, more deeply about what it means for us to not give in. They didn't allow themselves to become defiled. They remained faithful to their God. They didn't give in to the current. But they also exercised they also exercised discernment in where to draw the line, didn't they? Because they, they were exiled. They, Daniel didn't say, kill me. I'm not being a part of the Royal Academy. I'm not going to learn a thing from your stupid curriculum. I'm done. Kill me or throw me in prison. No, he, 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 somehow he discerned in his mind, no, actually, I think, it's a, I think, it, I'm, I think I'm in obedience to, to engage in this secular education. Okay. So he, he discerned that that was actually okay. And then they wanted to change his name. They stripped away his rich Hebrew name that spoke of Yahweh, and he was like, you know, don't like it at all. I'm going to still use my name when I'm around my peers and friends and when I talk to myself, but when I'm in the Babylonian world, I'll let them use their Babylonian name that speaks of their false god because this is not where I draw the line. So he, 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 he discerned on some level that that was appropriate. I, I, I wish I could give you the exact reason how I don't. I think it was just God by his spirit gave him wisdom. But then when it came time to belly up at the table and have this food, he just knew God gave him understanding that that is defiling me. I've called you to be set apart. I've called you to be holy. I've called you to be different. And if you do this, you are not holy. You are not set apart. In fact, you are defiled. You cannot do that. And that, that was the point where Daniel had resolved in his heart, can't do that. And so I think to just say, don't give up and move on to the next topic, I think it, I think it does not pay attention to the nuanced discernment that had to have taken place as these men were seeking to be obedient in exile. And I think you and I have to engage in that same kind of discernment as we seek to be obedient in the world God has placed us. You all have jobs. 
Some of you work in Christian contexts, but the vast majority of you don't. You work in secular environments, worldly environments. Many of you are the only believers in your broader family, and you're trying to figure out how to live among your family members. You have friend groups that are, that are unbelieving. You live in neighborhoods that are unbelieving. You're on sports teams that are unbelieving. You're in classes that are unbelieving. And you're trying to discern what does faithfulness look like. I don't want to burn the place down. Daniel didn't burn the place down, but he resolved not to defile himself. How do I do that? How do I not just hop in the raft of life and be swept downstream with the winds and the, and the currents of secularism? I don't want to do that. But I think there's this call to, 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 to a discerning resolve. And as I was trying to put words to it, I don't think I did a very good job of putting words to it, but I, what I ended up writing in my notes, and take it for what it's worth, as I said, they, they never gave up in who their king was. And, and I think part of it was like there was this, they couldn't eat with this other king. And so I, 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 in my notes I just wrote, don't compromise your allegiance to the king of kings. And I think there's something to that. And I, I'm just still, I'm still ruminating on that. But I think there was something in the heart of Daniel and his friends that said we cannot compromise our allegiance to our God, to the King of Kings. And I think that's, there's something why they wouldn't eat the king's food. And there's something to that. But I haven't, it's not, it's not settled in my mind. Sometimes we have to preach sermons without having our thoughts completely wrapped up. And that's just kind of, it's an open end right now for me as I'm discerning that personally. But Daniel knew that by eating it would compromise. So that's where he drew the line. So listen, this is a narrative. And one of the dangers we can do in Bible interpretation or even application is taking a narrative, which is a story, and making it prescriptive. This is a description of what life was like for the, the Israeli or the Jewish exiles in the 6th century B.C. This is a description of what life was like for them in Babylon. This is not prescriptive, meaning this is not exactly how it's always going to be, and this is not exactly how we are to apply it to our lives. There are some truths that we can draw from, but be careful not to make this just prescriptive. However, there's some things we can learn as we think about this experience. I, I can tell you this weekend, I dropped off my, my two, kid, two of my kids off at university. On Friday night, I dropped my 18-year-old daughter off, who's a freshman living in the dorms at Southern Oregon University. And I dropped my son, who's a 20-year-old sophomore, off at the Oregon Institute of Technology. And my oldest daughter, who's going to be 23 soon, she goes to SOU also. All three of my kids are in Babylon University. They're in the, the secular state university. All three of them are. And... Uh, I'll spare you all the gory details, but I can tell you one thing. When I dropped my, my pure, innocent, um, sheltered 18-year-old daughter off at SOU, they gave her a welcome bag. And I'm in her dorm room on Friday, and in her welcome bag is a handful of condoms. There's information for STD testing. There is all this literature promoting all sorts of campus groups according to certain identities that are abhorrent to her identity in Christ. And on one hand, I felt like I was dropping my kids off at Babylon University. On the other hand, I'm reminded that in our text, again, not prescriptive, descriptive, but God was the one that was pulling the strings that led these men being in this university because he had a work for them to do. He had, he had a purposeful work for them to do in a fallen world. My wife and I have tried our very best to raise our kids to know and follow Jesus. I'm sure we've made tons of mistakes like all of us have. But my, part of my thought is I'm sitting there dropping my kids off and thinking, you know, you know Jesus. And you know what it is to be defiled. You know what it is to turn your back on the gospel. So as we prayed for our kids, I just prayed, God, if he chooses to do this through my kids, may they be a mouthpiece for the truth. May they be a a parable of Jesus on this campus. May they be missionaries for Christ in a fallen world. They need to be there. 
God has a meaningful work for his people to do as we live as, as exiles. We're not to hunker, we're not to bunker, we're not to hide. We're to be salt and light. And God has called us to this. I'm, remindful, I'm reminded also of some of the language of 1 Peter. When I think about this, what does it mean for us to have a, a fierce resolve? Or what does it mean for you and for me to, to resolve in our hearts to, to not be defiled or to have a faithful resolve under pressure. I'm reminded of some language that Peter writes in his letter, 1 Peter, the one that talks about us being exiles. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. As I think about what does it mean to resolve, to, to, to be used by God, to not give in to the ways of the world, this language in, in verses 13 through 16 just speaks to me. Here's what Peter writes. To, to those of us that are exiles on planet Earth today, he says, Therefore, Christian, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Don't be defiled, in other words. Since as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I am praying that verse over my kids. And I'm praying that verse over myself. And I'm praying that verse over our church, that we would resolve that we would decide ahead of time right now to be faithful under pressure. I like what one commentator writes. Listen to this. The person of godly resolve who lives in accordance with God's ways is actually the one who is most useful in the world. And sometimes the world recognizes this. We, we think we will have less influence and be less important in the world when we choose to walk in God's ways. We think we will be necessarily marginalized, but this story from Daniel's life demonstrates that in following God, we can actually become more useful. We might just find favor with God and man. And so then I imagine your world. I imagine the world that you live in, each one of you. Whether you're a police officer or you're a public school teacher, or you're retired, or you're a physical trainer, or you're an insurance adjuster, or you're a farmer, or whatever it is you do. You all have jobs. You're a firefighter. You work as a pharmacist. I'm looking at other people I know. You own a chain of restaurants. Whatever your job is in the world, you, you work with veterans. God has you in a place today. And I guarantee you, you are surrounded by people who are clueless to the truth of Jesus Christ. God has exiled you in this city for this time. He has a work for you to do. You're in Babylon for a reason. God has a job for you and God has a job for me. I wonder what it would look like for God just to wake up each one of our hearts. I mean, radically wake up each one of our hearts to recognize where it is he has placed us. Whether you're a, a student and you look at the classmates that you sit to the right of and to the left of, or you're a teammate and you look at the people you practice with day in and day out, or you're a, a co-worker and you look at your peers at, at the work life and you're the only believer in the midst of all of them, or in your friend group, or maybe you're an employer, maybe you're an employee, a supervisor, a neighbor, a volunteer. May God give you his favor. May you know what it looks like to, to not give in to the current and the torrents of this world with respectful defiance. May he give you, in fact, worldly wisdom. Not that you're converted to the ways of the world, but that you know the ways of the world. So that like Paul, when he was at the Aragop, or Mars Hill, I can never say that word, as he spoke about the, the God of the, the unknown God, he spoke the gospel into a worldly context because he was aware of the ways of the world. That you might have real influence. The, the temptation is to hide. I get it. It's to hunker. It's to bunker. It's, the temptation is to look out at the unbelieving world and hate it. 
to look out at the brokenness in our world, the depravity in our world, that just the gross, abject celebration of sin in our world and just to hate it, hate it, hate it, and, and then hate the mission field and hate the sinner. Like, that is not biblical. The world is not our enemy. The world is our mission field. These are lost souls who don't know truth. And we know truth. And we are sojourners and exiles here to bring them truth. When I lived in Milwaukee. We did a lot of ministry in the, in the central city. Now, Milwaukee is a compromised city. 200 homicides last year. Hundreds of blocks of urban blight. Um, it's awful. Crime, broken schools, broken everything. And it's, and it's getting worse and worse each and every day. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who lives his whole life in the central city of Milwaukee. And he said, Paul, the hood is not just the hood because of the criminal element that lives here. He said, the hood is the hood because of the good people that fled that should have stayed. I'll never forget that. I don't know how God is working in your life. I don't. And I know God calls us to move. And I moved from, I left the city to come here. So God calls us to move. But I've had lots of conversations with people who've said, I hate Oregon, hate the liberal politics, hate the homelessness, hate it here. I'm leaving. I'm going to a conservative state that supports my values and my ideals. And if that's, if that's what God's leading you to do, who am I to judge? Go, honestly. I, I know that God is, I, I trust that you're listening to God, but could it be that Oregon doesn't need Christians to flee? Could it be that Oregon needs Christians to stay? Could it be that, that God has put you here for a reason as painful and as hard as it may be? Hey, get, I own land in Montana. I dream every day about going and building a cabin and just getting off the grid and just riding my life into the sunset. But maybe God has put you in a position today where you are a very important witness, a very important exile living in a foreign land with the truth of Jesus. And I hope you stay. I hope you consider what it means for you to be missional in our city. What it look like? If you saw the stranger as neighbor and the neighbor as friend and the friend as family, I'll finish with this. Here's what one commentator writes. If you're serious about being a follower of Christ, you will be one who is committed to keeping yourself clean in this world. But your, your resolution will not only be to purity, but to purity that does not withdraw. That is, we need to learn to keep ourselves clean in this world. It is where we are called to live and where we are called to be a blessing and to preach the gospel. We will not do this if we are too busy keeping the world out of the church to make sure the church is welcoming and engaging with the world. Or as Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, church, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, before I pray, I gotta just, I gotta share one more thought. One more thought. As we studied this passage a couple weeks ago, Thomas, one of the guys in my small group, he just recognized how interesting that how Jesus has turned this whole thing on its head. Here in our text, the primary concern from Daniel and his friends is defilement. If they touch the wrong thing, if they engage in the wrong behavior, if they do the wrong thing, they will become defiled and they don't want to. When Jesus came, when he touched that which was defiled, he did not become defiled, it became pure. The gospel is one that makes us pure, 
The gospel is one that purifies us. The gospel is where forgiveness is found, where new life is found, where the, where the sins of our life are nailed to the cross. They're cast as far as the east is from the west. And so if you're sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, you don't know my story, Pastor Paul. I've already eaten the king's food. I'm beyond repair. I've already engaged in the ways of the world. I'm, I'm well down that path. Let me just read the words of John. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the gospel. And when we come to Jesus, defilement is nailed to the cross. We are born again and made pure, forgiven, redeemed, and whole. Amen? Let's pray. Father, so thankful for your word this morning. Thankful for the privilege it is each week that you give us as a body of believers to gather and sit under these truths. These are world-changing, eternal truths that it is the, it's the center of everything. That you are a God who, through your, your son and through the, the shed blood and atoning work of your son on the cross, you you. God, in you we find forgiveness and purity and salvation and new life. And what an amazing truth. What an amazing truth that, that we can know you and be known by you, forgiven and adopted into your family. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us and loving us. And God, I know that each one of us here, we, we live in the world somewhere. God, we have a, a circle of friends or we have a family or a work environment or a classroom or a context within which you have placed us, God. Uh, those of us in here that know you, God, would you do a work in us by your spirit right now, bring appropriate vision and conviction. God, that, would you do a work in us that we would recognize that, that, you have a, that you have, you've placed us here for a purpose, that we're here for a reason, that you've given, a work, you've given us a work to do in the Babylon of today. God, help us to, to fight that temptation. And God, I confess to you, I have that temptation just to hunker, to bunker, to hide, to flee, to isolate, to create holy huddles in my life where I don't have to deal with the ugliness of the world. I, I'm tempted to do that every day. I confess that to you. God, we confess that to you. But that is not why you put our church in this city for such a time as this. You've put us here to be your hands, to be your feet, to be your mouthpiece, to live in such a way that we don't defile ourselves, we be, proclaim the truth and we walk in obedience. And when we mess up, we confess and we repent and we experience and, and drink deeply the forgiveness that only you can offer us. So God, would you work in our lives individually, work, work in our lives as a family. God, but our church, would you continue to do work in our church, this little church that meets in a gym in Medford, Oregon? Would you do a work in our church that we would be, God, that we would be exiles who are living lives for the good of the city? you've placed us in. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.